And if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Joel. Joel chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Joel is one of the minor prophets. It's uh, between Hosea and Amos. So you get through all the really long prophets, and then you get to all the really short ones uh, towards the back of your Old Testament. As you're, uh, if you're searching for it still, I had mentioned la- or last time uh, that we will be looking at Ephesians, but we would have a Sunday school in Ephesians, and we are in Romans also, and so uh, we thought it might be good to uh, do something from the Old Testament. I'll circle back to Ephesians later, so don't worry. We'll get back to Ephesians, but we're going to be looking at uh, Joel uh, uh, for a while when I am in the in the pulpit. So hopefully you've found it by now. Joel chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Again, give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid bare, it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he be pleased to bless it each to our hearts. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We've read hard words. This prophecy from Joel, this this terrible thing that happened in Joel's day. And we're reminded of terrible things that happened in our own day as well. Father, we ask that we may be comforted in your word. Help us to hear rightly what you have to tell us. Be with this your servant. May my words be your words. May Jesus be glorified. We ask this in his name. Amen.
Have you ever tried to get someone's attention and you couldn't? You just, you just couldn't get their attention. Maybe, uh, maybe it's a child who's doing something dangerous. Maybe they're doing something naughty. This happens sometimes with my children, right? They're, they say, don't look at me, Dad. Sometimes we need to get our children's attention. Maybe, maybe it's a brother or a sister uh, in the Lord, and, and they're doing something they shouldn't, and, you're, and you want to get their attention. You want them to, to see what they're doing. They're going down a, the wrong path. Maybe it's been you. Maybe somebody else is trying to get your attention. And they have to proverbial, proverbially smack you upside the head. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that's the way we should get people's attention. We shouldn't be striking one another. That's, that's not the point. But sometimes we need to feel a little something. We need, we, we need to, to have something that we, in order to make us sit up and, and take notice. Oh, uh, you, you, you have my attention. In life, we're often being instructed, but sometimes you and I fail to heed the instruction. And so we have to be disciplined, just as we discipline our children in order for them to learn the lessons that they need to learn. I often like to say that discipline in all its forms is pain with a purpose. If I had been thinking more clearly, I would have titled that this message, Pain with a Purpose. In our human experience, we will undergo pain and hardships which have a teaching and molding purpose in our lives. In fact, I will submit that quite often the Lord will bring about pain or trials in our lives to teach us and to sanctify us. Perhaps to deepen, a, deepen our faith and reliance on Christ. Or perhaps to drive us to a place of repentance. To point out our sin. Well, this is the kind of attention getting that we're seeing in Joel. There's a trial which the people in Israel are having to undergo. Joel, the book of Joel, is about great hardship, which points us and points the people in his own day to a coming judgment. First, there was going to be, there was this locust which had taken place, and that was pointing forward to a, an, an actual army which was going to come and, and destroy the land. But then even that is only pouring forward to something else, which is the day of the Lord. We sang about that. And so this is within the, the, the larger context of the book of Joel, and within the larger context of redemptive history, and the history of Israel. Now, Joel is a prophetic book. I mentioned already uh, that it's one of the minor prophets. Now, of course, the, the minor prophets are called minor not because they're not important, but because they're, they're shorter books in comparison to uh, the other prophets like uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel, for example, which are much longer, larger books. Now, the book of Joel, the, 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 the author we, we saw in the introduction was Joel, the son of Pethuel. We read about that in verse 1. And we also, uh, as we think about, and, and again, this is all sort of inter- introducing us into this book of, of Joel. Uh, Joel's name means Yahweh is God. So there's, there's actually almost an evangelistic uh, sense to his own name as he writes this book to his people, reminding them of who they are and reminding them of their future, of the day of the Lord. 
And so there's a sense of, of, con- of confession of faith and of a prophecy, even in his own name. Now, as far as, as we think about where do we place this within the context of redemptive history and the history of Israel, that's actually uh, a little bit harder to do. There's uh, a variety of, of ideas uh, anywhere from the 9th to the 4th century B.C. So it's hard to be sure exactly when, this, when, when Joel was active and when he wrote this particular uh, prophecy. It seems reasonable to assume that Joel was written sometime during or just after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Babylonian captivity happened in 586. Um, there's, a, there's a few different reasons why I think this might be the case. And again, this is all sort of introductory background information. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we can kind of place Joel in that kind of context is that the exile is treated as a past event. In Joel chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, The Lord speaks and says that he, that he judges people and he has scattered them among the nations and that their land will be divided up. And then in addition, in in Joel chapter 3, verse 17, it says that Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. It's also notable to to see that there's no kings mentioned in the book of Joel. Although, of course, the nation of Israel is mentioned. Uh, Although the kings aren't mentioned, the temple is mentioned. And it's mentioned in a positive light. We actually saw that even in our reading where it says that the, the grain offering and the drink offering would be cut off. So that has to do with the sacrifices. Now, some have suggested that uh, Joel lived in Jerusalem and he ministered as a, as a temple prophet. Uh, it's also noteworthy to, to, note, to note that uh, Joel doesn't mention any idolatry, which you'll find all over some of the other minor prophets like Hosea and Amos. Both mention idolatry, which was, of course, one of the reasons for the Babylonian uh, captivity uh, to begin with. And so for, for these reasons, uh, scholars give Joel a date around the exile in Babylon. But all that being said, I I tend to agree with Calvin, who thought that the date simply cannot be known for certain. I think Calvin's a a good one to side with. Well, regardless of the date, whether it's pre-exilic, post-exilic, the basic message of Joel remains the same. And that is this, that there is a need for repentance because the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Is coming. And this day of the Lord is a day of judgment on the enemies of God. Both the nations and Israel herself will experience the chastising hand of the Lord. Both God's people and those who are not God's people will come under the judgment of God. However, there is a call to repentance, and we see that in Joel. There's a call to repentance because this day of the Lord is coming. And so for the repentant, this day will not be a day of terror, but will be a a day that which holds promise of restoration. So for God's people, the day of the Lord should be a day of great joy because of restoration and all things being made right. And so there is sin and the promise of judgment on the day of the Lord, but there's also this promise of restoration for those who repent and turn again to the Lord. 
Well, finally, uh, as, a, as a part of our introduction to Joel, as we orient ourselves to this little book, I want to touch very briefly on its structure. Uh, the, basic, the basic movements of this book are actually quite simple. First, there is this locust plague. That's what we're looking at today. There's a locust plague in Judah, uh, which is a manifestation of the day of the Lord. It's, uh, it, it, Joel starts with that to kind of give you a picture of this destruction that's taking place. This, is, this act of judgment is a sign, is a, a precursor of a further judgment to come. And these locusts, they devour everything in the land. They lay the land bare. But then that, that image is transformed into another image. And that is of an army from the north which comes and brings further destruction. We'll be looking at that in future weeks and months. And this brings about a call for repentance and a promise of restoration and healing as the rains pour out on the land. And then there's this image of the Spirit being poured out on the people, which is itself an apocalyptic sign of God's favor and restoration. And then finally there's God's judgment on the nations as they pay for their hatred and their mistreatment of God's people. And so there's this basic structure which kind of plays out over and over again in Joel. There is the sin, there's judgment, repentance, and then salvation and restoration. So there's that cycle which will play out uh, in, in the book. And so Joel begins his prophecy with a lament and a call to listen. Joel, as I said, is, if you will, smacking, the, or at least pointing out that God is smacking his people upside the head and trying to get their attention. Something terrible has just happened. And the people, particularly the leaders, need to listen. Look at verse 1. He says this, and this, this call is an imperative. He says, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Hey, sit up, pay attention. Look around you. Joel is calling the leaders, the elders of the land. And he's also calling the general population to hear what is being said. Something incredible has happened. And something incredible is going to happen. And he asks a question. Look at verse, starting at verse 2, uh, 2b. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your children? Has anything like this ever happened before? You're going to tell your children about it. And then they're going to tell their children. And they're going to tell their children to generations. Now, what, 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 what's happened? Something terrible, he says, has happened. Now, there's a sense in which the prophet is engaging in a bit of hyperbole. But such a rhetorical question as, has a, such a thing happened, often follows an invitation to listen. There's this event which has taken place which is unparalleled in the lifetime of any of the people there nor any of their ancestors. Your parents, your grandparents have never even heard of such a thing. And this is such an amazing thing that for generations you're going to keep telling your children and their children. Well, what is it? What happened, Joel? Well, the people know what's happened. The people know. The people have undergone a terrible invasion of locusts. Now, these locusts have devastated the land. Now, this for us maybe is hard to get our mind around, right? 
locusts, first of all, are actually quite common in Israel and the whole um, eastern Mediterranean region, even to this day. The thing with locusts is that they're here today and gone tomorrow. That's kind of the deal with locusts. And generally speaking, they're nothing to get too terribly concerned about. Yeah, they'll eat a few things, but... They, they tend to uh, be here and then gone. As a matter of fact, the prophet Nahum minimizes the significance of the Assyrian when he says of them in Nahum chapter 3, verse 17, Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold when the sun rises. They fly away and no one knows where they are. So that's kind of, you know, that's one example. Like Nahum is actually sort of making fun of the Assyrians and saying... Yeah, you're here today, gone tomorrow. Okay, that's locusts, right? But this, this invasion is different. This time they have come and they have brought total destruction like had never been seen before. Look at verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are these literal locusts, or is this a picture of some invading army? There are some scholars who read this and think, oh, well, this is just a picture of, of, an, of an army. And, and there is a sense in which Joel is using that, but he's using an actual event. Something actually has happened. This is an actual locust event. Joel's vivid description is exactly what an invasion of locusts looks like. Now, on the surface, it appears that he's listing four different kinds of locusts. But you should know these are actually not different types of, or different species, but four different stages of the same insect. So we're going to get into a little bit of science, I guess, and talk about what, 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 the, what these locusts are. Now, now, for us, again, living in the United States, an invasion of this nature would be fairly remote. We don't, we don't think about uh, these kinds of creatures. It's hard for us to get our mind around such utter destruction and desolation that an invasion like this would bring. Plus, we have pesticides, so I guess that helps too, right? But in Israel, there have been a number of severe invasions, even in relatively modern history. Uh, there's one actually in 1915, which covered the, an area of Palestine and Syria from the border of Egypt in the south to the Tarsus Mountains to the north. So this is a huge area. That's about 713 miles from Egypt to, to the Tarsus Mountains. And, this, and these, these uh, locusts would come, and what they do is this, this first batch will come, and they'll just lay their eggs, and then they'll leave. And then, oh, okay, that, that was that. And in that 1915 invasion, they estimated that there was about 260 million eggs just in one acre. And then you had acres like that spread all over. You already see where this could go, right? This, this could be pretty bad. Billions and billions, in fact. Here's how it would work. A swarm would come, they lay their eggs, then they fly away. Then in a few weeks, those eggs would begin to hatch. And at this stage, they're small. They're like little fleas with no wings. And they hop around covering four to six feet, uh, 600 feet a day. Well, we, we read about that in verse 4, right? The hopping locusts. That's the hopping locusts. In the meantime, they devour any vegetation in their path. Within a couple of months, they will molt, and at this stage, they'll grow wings, but they still don't fly. 
And then they molt again and again and again, and they become fully developed adults. And, and these adult locusts then go from the fields and the vineyards, and they strip everything bare, leaving nothing but bark. And, and then, once that happens, they begin to eat the bark, and then they expose these parts, and then those become bleached white by the sun. Sounds familiar, right? This is exactly what Joel was just describing for us. In each successive stage of the locust, as it's completed, they, the, the, there'll be further destruction. And then whatever they had not eaten before, the next stage eats, and the next stage eats. And when you have such a large invasion, like what was described from 1915, you can see where they can go in and leave absolutely nothing left in the land. Vineyards, crops, trees, bushes, all of this would be utterly destroyed. It would be laid completely Bear. Imagine going outside and seeing that, right? And seeing the fields here. You know, we have uh, all kinds of vegetation here. Imagine going outside and in the, the Ozark region and seeing nothing, right? Just completely left bare. Dirt. Waste. That's what we're talking about. Complete wasteland. This is what's happened. These locusts have come and they've completely destroyed the vegetation of the land. And remember, this is a desert area too, so it's even worse, right? And so what's the nation to do? What are they to do? If you were to walk out into that and you'd think, oh no, this is bad. So Joel is calling them to wake up. Look at verse 5. Awake, you drunkards. Weep, wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So Joel is calling them, wake up! Why, why is this? Why is he calling out to them to wake up? Because they've been sleeping. They've been spiritually asleep. The drunkards represent those who are oblivious to spiritual things. They're too busy getting drunk on wine. And so he's calling them to weep. Wake up and start crying. Why? Because, because at the very least, your source of drunkenness has been taken away. Right? The wine has been taken away. But there's more. There's more reason for them to wake up. They've been spiritually asleep. Verse 6, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. These, these locusts have come. They've destroyed the land. They're, they're, like, they're being pictured like as if they were a lion, which is hungry and devouring everything in its path. They're powerful. They're destroying. Verse 7, has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off their bark, it's thrown it down, their branches are made white. You can see in Joel's descriptions, his very vivid descriptions of what an, act, what an actual locust invasion would do. And here's the thing, everybody has been impacted. Sinner and saint, the believer and the unbeliever, everyone has been impacted by this. The drunken will awaken and he'll find that he has no more to drink. The priests of the temple will mourn and, and weep because the grain offering and the drink offering is no more. It's been destroyed. The vineyards have been destroyed. The fields of grain have been destroyed. The, the priests will have nothing to, to bring to, the, to offer at the temple. 
The farmer will wail and be ashamed because his wheat and his barley has perished and there's no harvest for him. The vineyard owner and the orchard owner will have their gladness dried up because the, the, the vines and the fruit trees are all dried up and destroyed. The land is in ruins. And everyone is sad and everyone is hungry. And there will be a famine in the land, a famine of food and a famine of joy. And there's great suffering. And everybody is suffering. They're all in this together suffering. And though the suffering is real, this is also a picture of something else. Joel is saying, yes, you're suffering now, but there's greater suffering coming. This is a warning to you, he's saying. This season of discipline points forward to a greater judgment of incredible proportions. Don't ignore it, he's saying. Pay attention to what is happening. Joel is saying that what is occurring in the land ought to drive the people to repentance. It ought to drive them to their knees before their God. He is warning them of a greater judgment. And what is this greater judgment? The coming of the day of the Lord. Joel is warning the people. You know, as terrible as this locust invasion has been, and it's been, it's terrible. I mean, you just read it on the surface and you see, you know, that if, that, if I lived in a place that that happened, and we don't have grocery stores and, you know, Amazon, you know, to order things from, right? We don't have Walmarts to go to. Like, that is your, we're tied to the land. That is your source of income. That is your source of food. If that happens, you're in big trouble. As terrible as that is, Joel is, is, is warning them and telling them it's nothing in comparison to the great and terrible day of the Lord. You see the picture? You see the picture? The day of judgment from God, where God punishes the wicked for their sin. And so the people need to wake up. They need to lament their sin. They need to cry out and mourn for their wickedness. Verse 8, they need to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Cry out as if you were a young woman who just lost her husband. You just got married and then he died. That's the kind of mourning we're talking about. Mourn for what has happened, but know that this is something greater that it's pointing to. Mourn over your sin. Well, Joel will be getting to that greater judgment later on in the book. But know know this for, for the moment. Joel has illustrated for us a very sad scene, a scene of destruction from locusts in his own day, a literal locust invasion, which acts as a living parable to the people. All of these fruit trees and vines and everything has been destroyed. The land is in ruins. And the people would surely have asked the question, why? Why has this happened to us? And the reason this has happened is to wake them up so that the people would turn from their sin and turn once again to their Lord and to their God. In this case, a locust pointed them to the greater judgment on the day of the Lord. There is a judgment coming, but there is hope. 
this is the kind of context, this uh, difficulties and trials that these people were facing. These, this is true for us too. You and I also face trials and difficulties. There are times the Lord has appointed for us, even His own people, to lose everything. Think, think about what Job had to go through, right? Job was righteous before the Lord, and yet he lost everything for a season. Of course, at the end of the book, he, he ends up uh, receiving everything in twofold. But when we go through times and seasons like that, th- those aren't pleasant experiences. We don't wish for those sort of things to happen on anyone. But it does happen. And so we all face trials at seasons and times in our lives. And these trials can be a sort of discipline. Hebrews 12.7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The people of Israel were undergoing a fatherly discipline. They were suffering so they may repent and turn again to the Lord. And this is true for us too. We're called daily to repent of our sin, to trust and rest in Jesus Christ. There is a coming day of judgment, but for those who are in Christ, we can rest assured. For our Savior has already suffered the penalty for us. We have been redeemed for a price, and that price was that He paid in His own blood. And so our weeping over judgment can be turned to the joy of salvation. And Joel is helping us see that. Joel is helping us see that though we may go through difficulties and trials, we can take great joy in the Lord. Well, perhaps you're sitting here today, you're experiencing trials and difficulties. Perhaps you're under the, the chastising hand of the Lord. And maybe, maybe the Lord has brought a trial into your life to get your attention. Maybe He is showing you a sin. Maybe He is drawing you closer to Himself. Maybe He's using that in your life to build your faith. Whatever the case uh, may be, know that the Lord disciplines His children as sons because He loves them, because we belong to Him. This is what a father does for his children. The Lord sometimes slaps us upside the head so that we can see the realities of our sin or the realities of our need for faith in Jesus Christ. But as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 30, verse 5, the Lord's anger is but for a moment. And His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You might be in the night of your life right now. Israel certainly was in Joel's day. But beloved, the morning is coming and has already come. Our hope is in the salvation purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. The morning has dawned because of His resurrection from the dead. And so we are therefore called to repent of our sin, to turn to Him for the refreshment of our souls. 
You may be going through trials. The Lord may be disciplining you. But know, beloved, that you serve a God who loves you. So trust in Him. Rest in Jesus Christ. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us rejoice together in our Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your mercy and grace which You pour out on us through Jesus Christ. As we look at the great trial that the people of Israel in Joel's day, had to endure. We're grateful that you have not called us to endure such things. And yet we do go through trials. We do have difficulties. We don't want to minimize those. But we're also grateful that you often use those to do good things in us. And they're unpleasant to go through. And we don't always understand them when we're going through them. We may not understand them for years afterwards. But we can rest assured that you are a father who loves his children. And we're thankful that Jesus suffered the ultimate penalty for us. And his death. And we're grateful, oh God, for that, that he took our sin. Help us, O God, to trust in Him and rest in Him in greater measure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.